Exodus chapter 20. I, uh, again, am really impressed that you all came back tonight. Last week was a marathon. And we covered so much ground. And uh, I just need to learn to stop, you know, at a certain point. And, and, you know, maybe do it in part one and part two. But it was just, I get going. Tonight, we're not going to do that. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give you a little heads up. We're going to read through the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. But we're going to move pretty quickly through them and on to the last part of the chapter. Reason being that for the next 10, 11 weeks on Sunday mornings, we're going to take the commandments one at a time and work our way through them and seek to understand them in light of Scripture. But tonight, there's a lot of stuff that I want you to understand before we even get to verse 1. Before we begin to read background and understanding about this, this great law, that the Ten Commandments, what it really means, what it's all about. As you recall from Sunday, Israel showed up at Mount Sinai, that great towering rock pulpit, towering some 7,000 feet in elevation above them. And from this rock pulpit, God speaks to a people which had never happened before. It had always been to an individual, but in this instance, in this case, he speaks to a people and his voice thunders from the mountain. And I want you to understand that from my perspective, and as I've been studying this and reading over this last few weeks, there is nothing more relevant, or at least few things more relevant for the church today than the study and practice of the Ten Commandments. Now the church, being a church called by grace, being saved by grace and not by law, and that's very important that we understand that, oftentimes we'll shy away from things that have words like commandment in them, or obedience, or law. We think, well that's not for us, we're in grace, and and that's true. But if we throw the baby out with the bathwater, we miss the value of God's law. That it is applicable, that it is relevant, and it is, I believe, something for us today as much as it was for Israel when God brought it the first time. Jesus had this to say. I remember teaching on this verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. And it was at the first church, and I was in youth ministry, and one of my elders was sitting in on my teaching time. And I came to this verse, and I was struck that the law did not pass away. And I just shared that with the kids, and and he was really upset by that. It really bothered him because, you know, that's legalism and law. And I said, well, no, listen to this verse. Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now you need to understand, he's talking about a specific law. And I'll explain that in just a moment. But he says this law. This law is not going to pass away until heaven and earth do. Not the least stroke. Not the the tiniest little dot. not, Not the periods or the commas or anything in the law. It's all there. It's not going anywhere. And another reason why the study of the Ten Commandments is relevant today is that Jesus said in Matthew 24 verse 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. He's speaking about the end times and he says that's a a way that you can determine if you are in the end times. It's one of the signs of the times that most people's love will grow cold because of the increase of lawlessness. Lawlessness. For example, removing the Ten Commandments from a a state courthouse. 
lawlessness. Saying that the Ten Commandments truly have no bearing on our culture, on our country, even though our laws were grounded and founded on those laws. Saying that it's not applicable to us today. Driving it away. Saying, you know what, everything is relative. There are no absolutes. Lawlessness. Truth is what you make it, people say today. Or maybe you need some values-free counseling. I never understood that one. I'm going to go to counseling, but my counselor is value-free. How does that work? We all have values. Every one of us. We just may not have the same values. Somebody says they're value-free. What they're saying is, I don't believe in morality and, and, and you know, the, the Ten Commandments, that kind of stuff. My value is, do whatever you want. What about allowing the child to make up his or her, her own mind? I love that one. When a parent will say, I take my child to church, but I really don't want to influence them. I want them to make up their own mind. They're clueless. That's like saying, hey, I, I left my three-year-old in his room until he was ready to get his own breakfast. I'm going to let him figure out how to cook by himself. Of course you wouldn't do that. <laughs> the saying that everything is relative. Lawlessness. It's a time that we live in. Which is, again, why we're going to carefully work our way through the law of God on Sundays over the next 10 to 11 weeks. Because as saved people, like Israel, remember, when they came to Sinai, they were saved. Their salvation had happened when they were pulled out of Egypt, when God led them through the sea. They were saved. The law was not about saving them. It was about sanctifying them. Which are two different things. We talked about that on Sunday. Now, before we get, actually get into Exodus 20, there are two things I want you to know, and you can jot down if you're taking notes, by way of introduction. The first one is the law of God is dependent. It's dependent. And secondly, the law of God is distinguished. It's dependent and it's distinguished. Number one, the law of God is dependent on love. It's dependent on love. It hangs on love. It was painted with love. When God spoke it the very first time, it was all about love. Now you may have heard this before, but if you haven't, it's important. Jesus said these words. He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Matthew 22, 37-40. Love the Lord your God. Jesus says that's number one. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's number two. But I read the Ten Commandments and I don't right off the bat see them until I realize that the law is dependent on love and can be viewed in two loving sections. Section one is loving God and section two is loving people. And as you read through the commandments you can see this. The first four commandments have a direct and personal impact on our relationships with the Lord. On how we love the Lord. You read or you hear Jesus saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, a good place to start is the Ten Commandments, the first four. Follow those, look at those, behave with those, practice those, and you will begin to find yourself loving the Lord. There's just a practical, easy way to go about it. Section number two in the Ten Commandments would be the last six commandments which have to do with loving your neighbor as yourself. All of them detailing, how can I love my neighbor? Well, one good way is not to murder them. That's one way to show love. And we'll talk about that more specifically. You may think you're off the hook with that one. Wait till we get there. 
But contained in these two sections are, I believe, some of the most practical teaching in the Bible on how to go about loving God and loving others. We understand the Ten Commandments and loving God and loving others works. And Jesus said the Ten Commandments, all of the law, in fact, and all the prophets teaching hangs on those two things. Love God, love people. Now, the second thing I want you to know, and listen carefully, because if you miss this truth, if we don't get this, the law will always be a source of confusion. It will always be a source of difficulty for us, especially as we attempt to work it out with God's grace. You ready? The law of God is distinguished from the law of Moses. The law of God is distinguished from the law of Moses. The law of God and the law of Moses are two different laws. Though they're often treated as one big law. In John chapter 7 verse 23, right about there, Jesus is talking about, he's actually arguing with the Pharisees yet again, and he's talking about circumcision on the Sabbath. And he says, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? He references the law of Moses. Now you might say, okay, well that's just what he called it in that moment, law of Moses. In other places it must be called the law of God. Isn't that the same God? I'm not sure that it is. Romans chapter 7, verse 22. Paul references now the law of God. And he says, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. On the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. Again, you may ask, well, isn't the law of God and the law of Moses, isn't that the same law? I don't think so. Let's consider some differences for just a moment. First of all, the law of God is given in Exodus chapter 20. It's the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, literally. When it's referred to in the Bible, you see Ten Commandments, it's literally the Ten Words. The Ten Words of God. And it's given in Exodus chapter 20. The law of Moses is given in Exodus chapter 21 through 23. There's a break in there, which you'll see tonight. And then on into Leviticus. It's the civic laws, the ceremonial laws, the feasts, all the things that the Jewish people are supposed to do. It's different by nature, by design. It's different than the Ten Commandments, the law of God. Another difference, the law of God was spoken audibly to all the people. They all heard the law of God spoken. They heard the Ten Commands given. Pouring off of the top of Mount Sinai as the Lord thundered. Now it's interesting to note that rabbis teach that the law was spoken aloud at Sinai for a specific reason. You remember, remember Sunday that, that I shared and last week. The rabbis teach that when God spoke at Sinai, 70 voices were heard. 70 languages. Now, I can't prove that scripturally. I don't know if it in fact happened. But that's something that is in the Talmud and the rabbis continue to teach to this day. 70 voices. The the voice of many waters, they called it. But it's also interesting, something else that Jewish rabbis teach about the Ten Commandments. They teach that it was given, spoken audibly, heard in all these languages on Sinai and not in the Promised Land because it was for all people. Because it wasn't just for Jews. It was for everybody. Which is why God spoke it aloud with the 70 languages on earth at that time before they reached the promised land. Well, the law of Moses, on the other hand, was given privately. 
law of God spoken audibly to all the people. The law of Moses was given privately. It was given personally. And who? And then Moses, who was the lawgiver to Israel. Something else that's different. The law of God was written directly with God's own finger. He wrote it. Even the second time, after Moses had broken the tablets of stone, God said, I want you to, to reform some tablets of stone, bring them up the mountain. I will write it for you again. It was God's finger that wrote the Ten Commandments. Exodus 31.18 tells us when God had finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, He gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. God wrote the Ten Commandments. However, the law of Moses was written by Moses, inspired by God. God told Moses. He gave the law to Moses, but Moses is the one who wrote the rest of it down. It's only the Ten Commandments that are explicitly and specifically written down by God Himself, by the finger of God. Interesting. Exodus chapter 24, verse 3 and 4 says, Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. That's in chapter 24 at the end of the law of Moses, the, the rest of the law that's given. But at the end of Exodus 20, God is the one who has written down these ten commands. The fourth thing to notice is that the law of God was preserved uniquely. The law of God, I'm talking about again, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, some people call it the Decalogue. It was preserved uniquely in the Ark of the Covenant. Just the Ten Commandments, not the whole entire law, but just the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 1. At that time the Lord said to me, Cut out for yourself two tablets of stone like the former ones, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood for yourself. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered, and you shall put them in the ark. The ark of the covenant would have been there, the law of God, written by the finger of God on the tablets of stone, but not... Not the entire Jewish law, the law of Moses. Just the law of God. Bottom line, gang, the law of God, I believe, was intended for all people of all times. Whereas the law of Moses was written for Israel and for two times. Two times? What do you mean? Well, the first time was when they first received it. The people of Israel received the law and they began to live by it, or at least to attempt to live by it. They failed miserably. That was the first time. But both Ezekiel and Isaiah speak of a second time when the law of Moses, including the sacrificial feasts and festivals, will be reinstated. And that's during the millennium. Let me read you two quick verses on this. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 6. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants. Everyone who keeps Him from profaning the Sabbath and holds my covenant fast, even those I will bring to my holy mountain. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. And in that, in that instance, he's speaking about the millennium. Burnt offerings, sacrifices, that will be reinstated during the millennial kingdom. That's weird. Why would God do that? Well, we'll have to wait and see. Ezekiel chapter 44 verse 15 tells us the following. The Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to me to minister to me. They shall stand before me to offer the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. Again, this is Ezekiel 44. It's in the context of the millennial kingdom. And so the law of Moses 
will be reinstated again during that kingdom as the perfect law that Jesus will rule and reign with from Jerusalem. The role of the church during that time will be ruling and reigning with Jesus as well. The verses are up on the screen there behind me. Revelation 1, 6, 3, 21, 5, 10, and 20, verse 4. Every single one of those verses refer to the people being a kingdom of priests, ruling and reigning with, with, with Jesus from Jerusalem. So the law of Moses was for Israel then and the millennium to come, but it was never, and mark this, the law of Moses was never for the body of Christ, the church. Flip in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Some interesting things happened early on in the life of the church. Interesting things. Gentiles began to get saved. Which, for a lot of the Jews, just freaked them out. You need to understand, when the, first, when the church first began, it was viewed by many, by Romans, by Jews alike, as a sect of Judaism. It was just an extension, an offshoot, a branch of Judaism, not a whole new thing. People didn't understand that until Gentiles began to get saved. And so all of the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem had to come together and discuss this great problem. What are we going to do with the Gentiles? In verse 5 of Acts chapter 15, we'll pick up and read it right there. It says, Some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, there were Christian Pharisees, who had believed they stood up and they said it's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Can you imagine I mean, that would really dampen some evangelistic campaigns today. Come on to my church, and hey, if you want to join, yeah, there's a couple of things you need to do. We're going to take you out to the water, get you baptized there out of the pond. We're going to hand you a big book. This is the law of Moses. Start keeping that. And, oh, there's one other thing. We need to get you circumcised. I don't think you'd have a growing church, personally. But they wanted to do that. In verse 6, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit. He's thinking back about his Cornelius experience. Giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear the law of Moses? But we believe and are saved that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And all the people kept silent. And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul and they were relating the signs and wonders that God had done through all, through, through them among all the Gentiles. You see, in the early church, they had to struggle about what do we do with the law? What do we do with the law of Moses? Do we impose it on them? Or do we back off and say, no, we are saved by grace? They make a decision here. They understand. They accept God's standard that the church is free from the law of Moses. The law of Moses is for Israel, but the law of God, the Ten Commands, are for all people of all time. Now, wait a minute, Rick. What are you saying? You're saying that the Ten Commandments are for us here today, here and now? That's exactly what I'm saying. That we should follow those? Absolutely. That we're saved by doing those? No. I didn't say that and I will never say that. But the law of God, the Ten Commandments, are as important for us as a standard, as we talked about on Sunday, as boundaries for us in our lives, as a means by which God leads us to holiness. 
are as important for us now as they were to the Jews then. No, we're not under the obligations and regulations of the law of Moses, but the law of God still beats in our Father's heart for us. Listen to this verse. This is the love of God. 1 John 5, 3. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And John says, and His commandments are not burdensome. They're not hard. They're not heavy. They're not a weight. The law of God was not designed that way. It was not intended to be. Oh, you get into the law of Moses and it gets burdensome. It gets to be a real drag. There are so many different aspects of that law that we'll see in the ensuing weeks, but not the law of God. It's simple. It's easy to follow. It's a great guideline for us. Okay, with all that as a background, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. Exodus 20 verse 1 Then God spoke all these words saying I am the Lord your God Who brought you out of the land of Egypt And out of the house of slavery And before we take one more step Just recognize what God is saying He's about to give them the law But he reminds them that they're already saved You're saved, I've saved you Now, he says, verse 3 You shall have no other gods before me You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, listen very carefully to this. God is giving something very specific here in this verse, in verses 5 and 6. He's giving a warning. He's giving a promise, and He also gives a catch. Let's look at these. The warning, the warning is simply this. Read verse 5 again with me. He says, you shall not worship other gods or idols. He says, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me, and keep my commandments. The warning. The warning. What you do in your life will impact future generations. Will influence future generations. Choices that you and I make will affect our kids for their lives. Choices that we make will affect our grandkids as we ourselves have been influenced by and affected by those in our family lives who have come before us. There is an influence that is passed along. But that is not to say that future generations carry your blame. You may be able to influence the direction of a future generation, but the blame does not fall on you. And to note this, look at Ezekiel chapter 18. Flip over there. It's about midway through the scriptures. Ezekiel 18. It's important that we understand this. In the area of personal responsibility, as we we raise kids or as we're raising grandkids or as we're working with those in, in our families, but it's also important we understand that though there's influence and responsibility in the past for those who have raised us and impacted or affected us, we need to understand that we don't carry their blame. We don't carry their sin. It's not passed on. Ezekiel chapter 18. I'm going to kind of skip around. Just follow me in this, beginning in verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want you to get the main point. 
The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel writes, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. It's an interesting proverb. You hear what it's saying? Fathers eat the sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, the children are paying for what the fathers did. God goes on and says, listen to this, As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins will die. But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness and does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the houses of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during her menstrual period, if a man does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, does not commit robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing, if he does not lend money on interest or take increase, if he keeps his hand from iniquity and executes true justice between man and man, if he walks in my statutes, and my ordinances, so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous, and will surely live, declares the Lord God. Now, I don't know if you went down that list real quickly just to see how you did. But he says, the righteous person, whoever it is, regardless of what dad did, regardless of what grandma did, all souls are mine, and the righteous person will live, and the person who sins will die, in spite of what the generation prior to us or before us has done. Well, he goes on a little bit further down. He re- repeats it saying, uh, who will not live, someone who commits all these things. Verse 13, he will not live. Who has committed all these abominations, he will surely be put to death. His own blood will be on his own head. Now behold, he has a son who has observed all his father's sin which he committed. And observing them does not do likewise. Well, what happens to him? Skip down to verse 19. When the Son has practiced justice and righteousness and observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. Even though he's observed, even though he has been influenced or affected by his father's sin, if he will live in righteousness, he's going to live. The generational curse does not exist in that instance. You see what I'm saying? It's not passed along. Reading a little bit further. It says in verse 20, the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. And then at the end, and I love this last verse, verse 32, he says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent. Repent and live. All this to say the following. You can flip back to the Exodus chapter 20. All this to say that we are not tied to, or bound to, or held by the sins of our parents or by previous generations. Any more than our children are bound by our sins. As J. Vernon McGee says, I like this one, every tub has got to sit on its own feet. Every tub is going to sit on its own feet. We can't pass on those sins however we can, and this is the warning, we can influence. We do influence for good or for bad, but ultimately, even all of our children have to make a choice. They have to make their own choice. So the warning is that what you do will influence or impact future generations. But listen to the promise. 
a promise. You want to be released from generational stuff, influences that have negatively impacted your life. Listen to the promise. God, in verse 5, does not say, I am a jealous God, hammering the iniquity of the fathers on the children. He doesn't say, I'm a jealous God, who, who smashes the children because of what the father does. He doesn't say, I will nail them. He doesn't say, I will punish them. What does he say? What's the word there? Visit. I'll visit them. I'm going to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hurt me. Listen to this. God is saying something here. He's saying, I am jealous for you. So much so that I'm not going to give up on you or your family from generation to generation. I will keep visiting them. I will keep coming back to them. I will keep looking in on them. The Hebrew word here is pakad, visit. And it's the exact same word that David uses in Psalm 8, verse 3. How are you guys doing on warmth? Okay? Don't turn it down. Turn it down. If you guys are fine, we'll just let it roll. Let it roll a little bit longer. Okay. Russ, if you start to break down the sweat, turn it off. Okay. David says, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that thou visits him? Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. Oh, it's man that you would visit us, that you'd come to check in on us, that you would look in on us from time to time. Who are we that you would do that, Father? It's that same word, visit. And if the iniquity is passed on, God says, I'm going to keep knocking. I'm going to keep coming. I'm going to keep visiting. If they continue in the stupidity of sin, I'm still going to come to visit. And I'm going to see what happens. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. So if you want to be free from generational influences, sin in the past that has negatively affected you in one way or another, open the door. Because Jesus is visiting. Jesus is knocking. And he will come into dinner. That's the warning, the promise. But there's also a catch. And the catch is very simply this. Notice in verse 5 and verse 6, there are two very specific words. Words that I have circled in my Bible. On the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, he says. And then he says, I will show loving kindness to thousands of those who love me. The words love and hate. This is important. Love and hate is not just passed on from generation to generation. It is decided upon in each generation. I can talk to my kids all I want about Jesus. I can tell them how much God loves them. I can encourage them to be lovers of God in their lives. And I do. And I will. But ultimately the decision is theirs. Whether to love or to hate. Whether to be in relationship with God or to be in rebellion to God. And the Father says, as I visit each generation, as I go to the third and the fourth generation and come down to see, here's the deal, if they hate me, they will receive the same punishment as their Father. But if they love me, they're going to receive my kindness, my grace. An interesting example of this is Madeline Murray O'Hare, you may recall the, the atheist who got prayer driven out of the public schools who was murdered. Her body actually found a few years back. But what's interesting is this self-confirmed God-hating atheist raised a son named William, William Murray. 
William Murray was heavily influenced by his mother. At 17 years of age, he had his first wife, who wasn't his wife at the time, his girlfriend. His mom had her come and live with them and encourage them not only to be sleeping together, but to be doing drugs together, to be doing all kinds of things. And William bought into it lock, stock, and barrel. But by age 33, in fact, at age 33, William Murray gave his life to Christ. William Murray made his own decision. The generational influence of mom was intense. It was heavy. Madeline Murray O'Hare as a mother, can you imagine that? But William Murray chose Christ. And because of that, he lives. He will live in Jesus. The warning is there's a generational influence. The promise is God will visit each successive generation. And the catch is you've got to decide who you love or hate. You either love God or you hate Him. And that, my friends, is the basis of how He visits you. He'll visit you in your hate and you'll receive the due punishment or He will visit you in your love and you'll receive the grace. Well, verse 7, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, going on, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes His name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it, or of the Lord your God, in it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day, therefore the God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12, he says, Honor your father and your mother. First, first commandment with a promise that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you verse 13 you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery you shall not steal you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor you shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor for all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the smoking mountain. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. And then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. You talk to us, Moses, but not God. Not Him anymore. We can't handle this. He'll wipe us out if we hear His word again. God's word, Moses, is killing us. It's too much to bear. And there's a great truth in this. And the truth is that when God speaks, we die. When God speaks, we die. And that's just how it should be. Our flesh, our pride, our self-centeredness, our sin. When God speaks, it begins to die, doesn't it? It impacts the flesh in us. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And people even today don't want to hear God's voice because it's too much. They don't want to hear God's word because it begins making things uncomfortable, even painful. It starts to cause things in our lives to die. But there are things that need to die. I love this. Mark Driscoll, he's the uh, pastor at Mars Hill Church. And uh, I was talking today, just Monday, before he dumped the snake on my shoulders. 
And talking about, he and, he and Denise had gone down this last week into their daughter's church, Mars Hill Church in Seattle, which is a very cool church. And Mark Gripsel's the pastor here, or there. And he was speaking, and I believe it was about homosexuality, was, was the topic of, of conversation that Sunday, this last Sunday. And he got up, and Dave said, the first thing out of his mouth was, well, last Sunday we probably lost two or three hundred people. And he said, this Sunday we may lose another two hundred. And then he went right on to tell the truth. Because you see, people don't want to hear God's word. Because it forces change. It causes death. It deals a death blow to the flesh. It pierces, as the Hebrew writer says, it pierces my soul and my spirit. But it's a surgical piercing. Cutting away that which is already dying. Cutting away at the spirit that is bogged down by the flesh. Jesse Byer, who comes to the bridge. Several years ago, some of you were aware of this. Jesse caught that he thought it was a strep virus. And they flew, got him over to the hospital, and immediately then from there flew him down to Harborview, and he had a flesh eating virus in his neck. And this virus, it was awful. It just kept literally eating away. Chris is here tonight, his brother. It kept eating away at him. And this was a horrible time for the family because they thought there was literally no way to stop it. And what the doctors had to do in the surgeries on Jesse was literally to cut open his neck, peel back the skin, and scrape out all of the dead flesh. And then leave it open to heal. And the flesh-eating virus, this thing was tenacious. It kept coming back and coming back and coming back. And how many weeks, Chris, was he in the hospital? Six, seven, eight. I mean, it was a long time that he was in there. And, you know, two or three days would go by and there was some hope and he seemed to be getting better and suddenly here came the flesh and the virus again. It started killing skin. And the dead skin was in there and the virus would continue and it had to be cut away. And that's what the Word does. When God speaks, that's what He does. He cuts away the dead flesh. You know, when we in our lives find ourselves shying away from or pushing the Word away, it's in those instances that, honestly, we need to hear it more than any other time. Because it's in those times that our flesh wants to grow, like the flesh-eating disease that Jesse had. It wants to grow and move and, and do its own thing and take over our body. It wants to act like a cancer. And God's Word can stop that. Man, those times when I want to be in the Word, but my flesh repels it. It's so much easier to turn on American Idol. And watch other people be judged. I like that. That's fun. I love watching Simon Fuller go off on these other people and say these things. He goes, oh, I can't believe he said that. Boy, that guy just got wiped out. But for me to open up Scripture and find myself judged, it hurts. I don't want that all the time. Now, God is, a, is an amazing surgeon. He's the great physician, and he cuts with precision. But he only takes away that which would hurt us that which would harm. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20 And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. I have been crucified with Christ. We used to sing that at camp when I was a kid. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And we'd be clapping our hands and dancing around. Father, this is a great song. And it never crossed my mind what I was saying. I've been crucified with Christ. Now, if the camp counselors had erected crosses and crucified every one of the kids, we would have sung the song very differently. I've been crucified with Christ. But I live. 
God wants to kill the flesh, to take the things of the flesh that fights against the spirit and cause it to die. So when God speaks, the flesh recoils and the flesh dies. Verse 20. So Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. For God has come in order to test you. And in order that the fear of Him may remain with you, so that you, do, you may not sin. This, this is funny to me. Interesting. He says, do not be afraid. But God, because God's come in order to test you, in order that the fear of Him may remain in you. Doesn't that seem like a contradiction? Don't be afraid. God's testing you so the fear will remain in you. How does that, what, are you, what are you saying? I don't understand. Well, first of all, this whole word test. You've heard it before in the, in the scripture. When the scripture talks about God testing us, it's a proving. He is testing you. He is proving you. He is showing you to be what He wants you to be, what He is creating you to be. It's like the commercials where you see those half-ton trucks and they'll drop like huge blocks of cement into the back. I mean, they will brutalize these trucks. And you watch the commercial and watch the truck survive and go, yeah, I'll buy that. I'd like one of those. That's cool. It's being proven before your very eyes. But Moses then says, God has come to prove you, to test you. He's, he's causing this strengthening to happen. But he says, don't be afraid. Then he says, the fear should stay with you. So Moses, which is it? Well, it's both. What he's saying is, as they're backing away, as they're trembling, he's saying, hey, don't be afraid of God. Fear God. Don't be afraid of God. Fear Him. It's two different ways of approaching the Father. Don't run with your tail between your legs. Don't be a frightened coward before the Lord. But as we prayed earlier, He is holy. He is a holy God. And we need to fear Him. Proverbs 9.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so Moses is saying, as again, the people of Israel are backing up. Don't run away from the Lord afraid. But stay with the fear of the Lord. Stay here at the mountain. Tremble if you must. Recognize His grandeur and His holiness and His greatness. Be in fear and awe of Him. Don't be afraid. Don't run off. Well, so the people stood at a distance, verse 21, while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Verse 22, Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. You shall make an altar of earth for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If, if he says, you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. What does all this mean? Two quick things and we're done for tonight. Number one, when the law is conveyed, an altar must be made. When the law is conveyed, an altar must be made. For you see, right here at the end of Exodus 20, after bringing the law of God, and before getting into the civic and ceremonial law of Moses, the Lord stops and gives instruction on building an altar. Why? Because the law of God brings us to the realization of sacrifice. Because when we hear and receive the law of God, it drives us to that place, to the altar. 
This is not only the point of the law, it's the spirit of the law, that after the law is conveyed, an altar must be made. But notice the description of this altar of sacrifice. It's not to be ornate, not artistic, not carved or grand in any way. It's supposed to be made of earth or uncarved stone, plain and simple. Why is that? Because the focus is not supposed to be on the altar. It's supposed to be on the sacrifice. But as human beings, we mess that up. We get it completely backwards. We are so good at deifying stone and metal and wood. We're so good at making things ornate. And we say in the beginning, in the first place, well, we're doing it to honor God. We're doing it to please Him. We're building these things, we're carving these things, we're placing these things around in our churches because we want to honor the Lord. But when God approaches the altar, He says, you know, I don't want you focusing on the altar. Make it out of rocks. Don't carve the rocks. Stack them up. Make it out of earth. Don't do anything special with the altar because I do not want you focusing on the altar. That's what the pagans did. The pagans focused on the altar making the altar itself special as if it had some kind of magical quality to it that could heal or help them and they bowed down to the altar. God says, no, not the altar. That needs to be kept simple. It's what's on top of the altar that matters. Well, how does that apply to us? We don't have altars today. No, but we do have the cross. And it was who was on the cross that is important. And look at what we've done to the cross in our churches in our bookstores we've made it a logo God says I don't want you to be focused on the thing that the sacrifice was offered on I want you to be focused on the sacrifice who is Jesus it's the sacrifice that matters it's the sacrifice that saves you it's the blood poured out of Jesus that brings you into heaven not how many crosses you have hanging on the walls around your house and gang this is religion it's a good definition of religion the greater the grandeur the farther we get from God that's what religion does it makes everything grand it makes everything ornate everything powerful everything impressive And as we enter into those places of religion and we're just in awe of things, we completely miss the Father. We miss that we are drawing further and further and further away from God. And you may say, I love the Rick, I love the beauty and the artistry of the old churches. I love the stained glass and the wood carvings and the ornate crosses. I love that stuff. And that's the problem. God doesn't want us to love that stuff. He wants us to love Jesus. He wants us to focus on the sacrifice. And when we sing about the cross, again, it is not the cross that we worship. It is not the cross that we honor. It's not the cross that we pay homage to. It is the Son on the cross. It's what happens there that saves us. The focus, God says, to be on the sacrifice, not the altar. He wants our love to be directed toward Him alone. Well, you might say, okay, what about the Old Testament temple? And Solomon's temple... That was ornate. That was lavish. That was rich. Yeah, well, God never asked for the temple to be built. He didn't need a temple. God was fine in the tabernacle. When David wanted to build the temple, what did God say to him? You're going to build me a house? Oh, God. But go ahead and draw up your plans. I mean, it was almost like he was acquiescing to David, just saying, all right, you you can do that. I'm going to make you a house, God said to David. And then Solomon comes along and the temple, oh, is awesome. 
then that temple went down and later on Herod had the temple that was rebuilt and he refurnished it and made it absolutely amazing apparently well Mark chapter 13 verse 1 tells us that as Jesus was going out of the temple one of his disciples said to him teacher behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings and Jesus said to him do you see these great buildings not one stone is going to be left upon another one it's all going to be torn down that was Jesus' response to the wonder and glory of the temple. It's not the ornate things of man. It's not the religion that we like to dress ourselves up with. And I would even say this. Don't even let this barn get too important to you. When we sit in here and it's nice and say, okay, well, we don't have any stained glass really. And not that stained glass is a problem. We do some good stained glass work. It's not what I'm talking about. When we look around and say... Yeah, we're in a bar and it's cool. We're in jeans, we're relaxed, and we're kicked back, and we're not religious. But I've already heard people go, I hope we never have to leave the barn. Dang, it ain't the barn that saves us. It's not the barn that draws us together here tonight, is it? I hope not. Isn't it the relationships that God is building? Isn't it His Word and His Holy Spirit? And whether we're in a barn or a metal building, or even some big church building somewhere... That's not the point. The point is the Father. Well, verse 26 says something interesting. We'll finish on this. It says, You shall not go up by steps to my altar so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. And this is somewhat of a humorous verse. Because the men in those times, men of Israel, would be wearing you know, robes, more like skirts, that had to be hiked up as they went upstairs. But if, like the pagans, they would develop these, build these altars and have high stairways going up to them, about halfway up the stairs, God's saying, I don't really want to see that. I don't need to see your nakedness. No one else wants to see your nakedness. So don't build the stairs. But there's a principle here as well, and that is this. The higher the steps, the greater the exposure. The higher the steps, the greater the exposure. And so God says, no steps when you approach my altar. When you build my altar, build it right there on the ground. Approach it. Don't go up. That's interesting. No higher elevation for the human approaching the altar. And there's a very important principle at work here. As we said earlier, the law of God does a wonderful thing. God's law, it reveals my great need for a Savior. But here's the irony of how humanity approaches the law. After we hear the law, after we hear the law, it may drive us to Jesus, but how long does it take before we begin to rebuild our pride with religion? Before we begin to build steps that we can go up so people can see and notice how Christian we've become. How spiritually we are growing. We build ornate altars with high steps that we can climb to show what truly spiritual people are and there we lose the whole point. That the law of God was given to alter my pride and to bring me to Jesus. And Jesus said in John 15:5, Apart from me, you can do nothing. The higher the steps, the greater the exposure. That's, by the way, why the Bible says, Let not many of you become teachers. Because you're going to be judged by a higher standard. The more we stand up in front of other people and proclaim ourselves to be the example, the picture, the way to go, the more we will be exposed. And it doesn't bother me to tell you at all that teaching at the bridge scares me to death for that very reason. It's why I have people that I'm accountable to. Because I don't need to be thinking highly of myself. I think high enough. 
Okay? That's why God gave me Cheryl, to help me not think so highly of myself. I'm just kidding. She thinks very highly of me, more highly than I think of myself. Anyway, see, that, that's the moment. We just crossed it. That was the moment that I should have stopped. I'm done for the night. We're going to be moving through the law of God. On Sundays, going back to the Ten Commandments, taking them one at a time over the next several weeks. But let me leave you with this one verse as we consider that last thought. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, weak as it was through our flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that's how we approach the law. That's how we approach the Ten Commandments, in the Spirit. If we approach the law in the Spirit, guess what God does? He fulfills the law in us. Not because we're keeping it perfectly. Not because every single one of the ten, as we count through them, do we handle really well. But His Spirit fulfills His own law in us. And again, as Jesus said, John 15:5, Apart from me, you can't do anything. So may we be hearers and doers of the Word, listening and acting upon the law of God. Not as something we can do to save ourselves. Not as something we even can do to lift ourselves up or to elevate ourselves on higher steps. But as something the Spirit of Christ is doing in us as we surrender to Him. Let's pray. Jesus, we do surrender to you tonight. I'm excited about the law. I'm excited about studying it. But I pray, Holy Spirit, and I need to ask this right now. Spirit, that as we study these things, that you will blanket us with so much grace that even in our reading of the law, we don't get caught up in what we can do. Lord, show us by the Ten Commands ways that we can better serve you and boundaries in which we can live and attitudes leading toward holiness but all couched and blanketed in grace and all understood Father with the very true reality that you are our God and apart from you we can do nothing in Jesus name Amen